A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Maximizing the value of your data through data products. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Bruno Aziza, head of data and analytics at Google Cloud. Some key takeaways or thoughts from Bruno's point of view. Number one, the end goal of your data strategy should be to reliably and scalably turn data into value. The best way to do that is by creating data products. How you get there might be different, whether that's data mesh or not, but don't lose focus on turning data into value. That's where you really have to focus on what you're doing with data. Number two, quote unquote, the number one barrier to your ability to drive value from data is not your technology. It's your people and how you organize your team. I think that's interesting that a vendor is is saying that. Number three, focus on the point of what you are trying to deliver, not the actual output. It's not about delivering a dashboard. It's about creating a sustainable way to explore, share, and consume information and insights, whatever form that takes. Number four, this one's controversial. There are three phases to getting to data-driven. The first is kind of building out a data lake, or Bruno specifically talked about a data ocean. Number two, in his view, is data mesh. And number three is getting to a data product factory equivalent. I actually really dislike the data product factory idea because I think that's kind of where we've seen feature factories and stuff on the software side. But I think it's an interesting point of view to explore further. Number five, it's easy to try to put the cart before the horse in data. Before doing something like data mesh, you have to think, How will you develop data as a function in your organization? 
Number six, understanding the data product manager role and leveraging data product managers well is crucial to building an effective data product strategy and practice. They are your data product CEOs. Number seven, a CDO's effectiveness depends on if they have a true seat at the exec table. Can they create the necessary change? And how many people in the organization are, quote unquote, devoted to the data opportunity? Number eight, potentially controversial, quote unquote, really smart data leaders hire for the business department. Understanding in that hiring process, if someone cares about data and if you can work with them is important. If that potential head of whatever, you know, marketing hire doesn't care about data or has low data fluency, will it be possible really to work together if you're, you know, kind of heading up the data department, right? The data leaders. Number nine, the companies doing the best on data literacy or fluency are making data a crucial part of their culture. Their daily practices increase data fluency across the organization rather than in that centralized data team. It's not about just training. It's about changing habits. Number 10, data-driven companies are, quote unquote, 162% more likely to surpass their revenue goals. I think this is one of those of why are we doing data? It's to drive business. Number 11, quote unquote, We're seeing people kind of rushing into migrating and not thinking about governance. Bruno was talking specifically about mesh. And I think in general, this is something that we're seeing in a lot of places of we'll fix it later, we'll fix it in post. And I don't think that really works, especially, you know, you listen to the people who've been successful in their data mesh implementations, and they talk about taking a thin slice of all four pillars and, you know, not doing all of them up front, but getting all of those things kind of going at the start. Number 12, potentially controversial. There are two components that significantly increase the chances of successfully transforming to being a data-driven organization. Number one, a true organizational mandate to become data-driven and work on data products. And two, does your organization have the attitude and aptitude to drive towards being data-driven? Number 13, there isn't a clear pattern yet for the best way to find your data product managers. You know, is it teach the business aspects to the data people or vice versa? But it's clear that understanding what value data products drive, not just the ins and outs of the data product itself is crucial. So if you lack that business aspect, you're going to have bad data products that just don't deliver the value that you want. Number 14, more and more, the centralized data team is getting swamped in large organizations. I think we all kind of know this, but too many are are too happy to kind of switch completely the other way and fully decentralize, which also causes many, many issues. Federated, you know, the decentralized control and work, but centralized collaboration and practices is the approach seeing the most success, whether that's data mesh or not. That's what Bruno was seeing. Number 15, potentially controversial here as well. There are three types of data products, internal domain focused, you know, data on the inside, not very reusable. Number two, the core centrally managed. And number three, kind of everywhere in between. Number two is not something that Jamak envisions at the end state, but a lot of people are doing, especially along that data mesh journey, that there still is something that is centrally managed. Whether that 
becomes the long-term practice? I don't know. Number 16, a major issue in the organizations that focus on empowering domains without interoperability is that, surprise, surprise, there are different semantic meanings, and so the data becomes very difficult to integrate or interoperate. And finally, number 17, focusing too much on quick wins will mean you miss out on the places where data can add a lot of value. Quick wins are typically not big wins, or maybe you do find the big wins fast at the start, but then all of your following quick wins are moderately sized as best. You need to balance those, but if you're going for the real value of data, it's not going to be focusing only on those quick wins. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode here. I've got Bruno Aziza here, who uh, is a, n- a name you may know and uh, love out there from his uh, five-minute car talk things that he does on a weekly basis. He's the head of data and analytics at Google Cloud, recently promoted, so congrats. Um, we're going to be... We're gonna be covering a lot of different interesting things. Um, you know, Bruno obviously has seen a lot of how companies are actually trying to do their digital and data transformations. And that, you know, there's always the concept of here's how the ideal picture looks like, and here's the realistic thing of what we can do. So we're going to talk about like, what would be a good composition of your, your teams and your data capabilities? Like, how do you figure out if you're actually doing it well too? Because it's not easy to say, <laughs> are we doing the right thing when there's no real benchmarks out there? And then we're also going to talk about what the heck actually is the concept of a data product? Like, do what does consumer grade mean versus just this kind of internal thing that we've had historically where it's, eh, it's kind of good. Is it good enough? Like, how do we get to that that concept? So with that as backdrop, before we jump in, uh, Bruno, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your show. I've been listening to it. So I've been a big fan. So I'm honored to be uh, to be here. Uh, for the folks that don't know me, uh, my name is Bruno Aziza, and you'll notice it reads form backwards the same way. So it's very easy to remember it. I am the head of data analytics at Google Cloud, and I really specialize in everything data, AI, and analytics. That's what I've been doing my entire life. I worked at really small companies like AtScale and Alpine D-Labs and SciSense. So I was there very early. Mid-sized companies like Business Objects, if you remember them, who were an amazing business intelligence uh, company. One IPO, bought Crystal, bought Acta, uh, was bought by uh, SAP for $7 billion. And I worked at companies that are large, like Microsoft, where I helped build the um, data business there, uh, company, you know, products like SQL Server and Power Pivot and all these great offerings. It's been seven years there. I, I, I now have been at the Silicon Valley back here. Uh, I was working Microsoft for, uh, uh, for seven years in Seattle. And so data is my passion. 
Uh, and I'm excited about uh, your podcast and excited to connect with your community. Yeah, exactly. And, and you've been putting out good things around and, and highlighting good content around data mesh. So I'm, I'm excited about this. Um, so I think this is a the conversation about your teams and your data capabilities and how to organize is one that comes up in almost every conversation because I keep having people that think it's either a one or a zero of we have to completely reorganize the company or we can't reorganize anything and everything has to stay in this kind of rigid structure. Um, but we do need to think about like how do we actually organize? We don't just say, okay, we're just going to do this thing as a skunk works. I don't think data mesh as a skunk works works. So like, how are you talking to your your clients and the the people that you're you're having these conversations with? How are you how are you talking to them about what you've seen historically? You know, you've been through all these different companies. How does that evolve? How do you get people kind of headed down the right path and and that measurement of um, how how are we doing? Like, what what yeah. what are our goalposts? What are we trying to do here? It's a great question because the number one barrier to your ability to drive value out of data is not your technology. It's, it's your people and how you organize your team. And so, you know, it's it's a top question for leaders that I, I spend the majority of my time with customers and in the industry really trying to crack in of this, you know, how do I get value out of the data? There's no question that people know there's a ton of value there. The question is, how do I affect the culture and how do I effectively outperform, um, you know, in the marketplace. And so I think the first component is the development of a data leader and, and data as a function, right? I mean, you look at 10 years ago, only 12% of companies had hired a chief data officer. You know, today, I think it's 74%, two thirds. I mean, it's a, it's a large potential, you know. So the first bit that I would look at is who is that leader inside your organization? Who do they work with? Do they have a seat at the table? Do they actually have build the table, right? And I think you want leader here who has a vision, able to catalyze the organization because the other component is how many people in your organization are devoted to the data opportunity. That's probably the second component. Once you have a leader in place, it's a strong leader. They have a vision. They're able to drive that vision. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard one to do as well because I think the tenure of the chief data officer is in two and a half, three years. So it's, it's, it's still a profession that's in development. Now then you need to look at the composition of your team and how many people are there. So, you know, we it ranges from companies that have less than 1% of their employees are data people to organizations like Wayfair where 18% of their people are data people. And so when you have that, you know that, you know, the primary product or the primary asset is data. Now, what happens if you're an organization where you have a chief data officer and you have very few of those? Does it mean that you have to go hire people or does it mean that you have to rally people who can take on, you know, data responsibilities? And that's what we've seen is it's really hard to go out and hire a bunch of data scientists, data engineers. Uh, they might not be available. The best ones are already hired. Um, you have talent today inside your organization. So what we see is organizations like Mercado Libre or WPP have these amazing programs that are data culture programs. Now, the trick on data culture, and I might be over answering your question, so you gotta interrupt me if I'm going too far. 
But the trick with data culture is culture is not something you put on walls, right? Culture is not just a bunch of posters with values and then you just continue being what you are. <laughs> culture is a set of practices and it's daily practices. And so what we've been able to learn from leaders like, like said, Mercado Libre or WPP, they have intentional practices. They have intentional goals that they've set on the organization to achieve data literacy. And they have specific practices that really uh, you know, are different from the average organization that allows them to build a gigantic um, bench, if you will, across functions, business IT, that care about data as the way they do business. So these three components, leader, the proportion of people, and the daily practices. It's kind of like going to the gym, right? If you wanted to run a marathon, you probably need to be running every day. You yeah. can have a great poster of you winning the marathon, but if you don't go to the gym and if you don't take that run, you're never going to be able to achieve that goal. Yeah, and I think that, uh, especially that last aspect, I think the the leader aspect of it, so many of people that I'm, uh, I talk to that are frustrated is that they're, they're handicapped from the beginning because the company says, we want to be data-driven. And then you start to say, okay, do I have enough people to do this? Do I have enough budget to implement that culture? But especially that, that last part of the practices of, you know, I, I read uh, a great post about like, what actually is an insight? And it's not just this is something that is interesting versus like this is something that is actionable and that is repeatable and that we want to track and, and monitor versus, huh, this was kind of interesting. And so, um, but I think we're kind of seeing that on the, the data mesh side too of a lot of people are kind of smacking the label of what they're doing as data mesh and not changing anything. Versus if you want to actually, you know, whatever you want to label it, this data driven, this data informed, whatever, that you have to start to change the practices and you have to change the way you interact with the concept of data, right? That your production of data is part of the process of software development. It's part of the process of doing business and that you you set yourself up to win with data rather than you go, okay, we've been doing this thing. Now we want to get better at it. So let's start generating the data. And so like, but you talked about that, that organizational aspect. There are, you know, within Data Mesh, there's, you know, multiple different camps about do you completely disband the data team and you embed people into all of the different domains, like how quickly does that happen and all that. But a lot of people are saying, well, no, especially when you think about execs, their questions are cross domain, right? They're very rarely centralized to a domain. So do you have a domain of, of GNA, you know, of a general and administrative that is for the execs and you have data analysts embedded into that, that, their job is to combine data from all these different um, other domains. Or like, how do you see? How have you seen that evolve? Where people are actually happy and, and driving good value instead of uh, driving uh, the budgets up for their consulting bills because they've come in and done organizational change. Here's here's the good news, right? So we know that organizations that are data driven are 162 percent more likely to. Uh, surpass their revenue goal. So we know that being data-driven is going to get you results. That's the good news. The bad news is 
less than 27% of companies are actually able to achieve that goal. So, so why is that? So I think the first factor is, what does it mean to be data-driven? You know, we've been talking about that. What is the artifact that says, you know, yes, you're data-driven? And, you know, I think what we're discovering is that organizations are able to produce data products in a repeatable manner for their audience at scale typically are those who are data-driven because it's undeniable that you as an IT organization or data organization, you are providing a specific thing that is the product um, that people can use to make decisions. Now, what is that product, right? If I continue drilling into, okay, what is data-driven? Data-driven is you produce data products that bring value. Okay, what's an example of that product? Now people think, okay, well, that is a dashboard. Yes, and it's also a bunch of other things. It could be a you know a custom application you have built that is using AI and real-time data that enables you, your people within their work process to achieve a particular goal. And so the question now is, great, now I know what a product is. How do I get myself one? <laughs> and what we're discovering is that there is, in fact, three phases that organizations go through. Data mesh is one of them. I think the mistake that we've made in the industry and you know, data mesh is a popularized term now, and I'm very thankful for Zamac to have created that uh, you know terminology, written the papers. I was with her just a few weeks ago. I'm a big fan of the methodology. I think the in- interpretation of it, I think, is what's been you know problematic because people have thought my data mesh is my end goal. The data mesh is a way to get to your end goal, and I think what we're seeing customers succeed with is. My end goal is to build a data product that turns data into value and a data mesh is a way to get there, right? The first stage is you still have to do the stuff that, you know, might not have been sexy before, which is you got to build your solid technical infrastructure. You got to build a modern one. You got to build something that is very fluid, that allows you to move from transactional to analytical, that allows you to move across cloud, that allows you to catalog and govern data as the first step. You know, what we're seeing people, you know, kind of rushing into migrating and not thinking about governance. And then they realize if they had done that, they could migrate faster. But more importantly, when they don't do that as a first step, it costs them more time and money to go back and then govern uh, later. And so Data Ocean is this first stage. One of my customers, the CIO of Vodafone, named that phase. When I asked him why, he said, because everybody's talking about a data lake, but the data lake is this landlocked thing. It's very comfortable. The reality is I never see the end of my data. That's why data sharing platforms are important. That's why cross-cloud is important. That's why transactional analytical is important is because I want to build a system by which my team has access in a secured manner to all the data. And a big part of that data is probably not mine, which is really kind of crazy if you think about it, right? So that Modern data stack, if you will, is a required component to getting started. It is necessary, but it's not sufficient. The second stage is the data mesh, where you now want to create an environment by which people are able to innovate at the edge uh, while they're able to rely on centralized policies and centralized infrastructure, not just for data access, but also for the rapid provisioning of resourcing and the you know financial operations required to enable these people. I think one of the 
uh, pieces that are still missing in the data mesh construct is how do you cross charge these these things? You know, do the individual teams deploy their own environment? You know, this is a question that we get from lots of customers that are doing this at scale. I think about delivery here, for instance, one of our, you know, uh, customers who has done that across the world and they start across multiple platforms, financial operations, a big consideration. So the data mesh is this organizational construct that is focused on enabling people to innovate at the scale, at, at, at the edge in a scalable, secure and cost effective manner. Once you have that, now you've essentially built a factory, if you will, that allows you to get to your data product. So when you want to say, you know what, I want to create data uh, anomaly detection. Now you have a system that allows you to do that. Your teams are organized, they trust the data, you can see all the data, and you can then activate it, uh, which is what you want to be in the business of. Um, not an easy journey. You know, definitely a small proportion of, co- of companies are there, but... I can tell you for having worked with many of the people that have started there, uh, it is a little bit of a mindset shift where you're now in the business of, I don't want to say software engineering, but you are, as a data organization, you are putting yourself as you're building a solution. You're not delivering a dashboard. You're organizing to build a solution, not just once, to build a solution as a, um, a method, if you will. Yeah. And, and um, I think one of the things I want to circle back on your example about like running a marathon, it's kind of the same thing of being healthy, right? Like this is a thing that when I think about data mesh and data mesh being the point, it just frustrates me to no end because of exactly what you're talking about. What are we actually trying to achieve, right? Like that is something that, you know, Jmack talks about it somewhat in her book, but doesn't spend the whole book focusing on it because it's just kind of an implied thing of, yes, we know that this is, if, if we don't believe that scalable, secure, understandable, trustable, all of that stuff around data, that yeah. we can't derive value from it, then we shouldn't be doing data work. If we can't derive, so there's that implicit assumption that we can drive value and, and you know, drive a return on investment, not just incremental value, but a, a fair return on investment for your work and your costs and all that. But it's not the business strategy, right? Like really tying that together is so important because what are you actually trying to do? You might be able to create the most amazing model in the world, but if it doesn't drive anything, if it's not actionable. And, and you know, I think this is the same thing of like, what does healthy mean, right? Like, I'm trying to get healthy. Does that just mean that you're exercising a whole lot, but you're still eating terribly? Or does it mean that you're, you're eating well, but you're not exercising at all and your muscles are atrophying? And like, and what does it mean to you to actually be healthy? Because there is a level where you're not, where you're going too far, where you're spending too much money. You know, I saw this with somebody doing cost optimizations. I think it was at, at segment and they went in and they spent, you know, about a month of, of engineering time to save $500,000 a year. And then they went and spent a year of engineering time or more. I think it was like two and a half years or something like that of engineering time to save another $500,000 a year. And it was like, on a pure cost basis, it didn't make sense. Did it make sense because it made it more scalable or something like that? I can't say. But like, 
it's th- you might be throwing bad money after good. You know what I mean? Like so much of this is, is about that. So I want to kind of circle back to the whole point of, of this data products and driving action and insights and actually doing that. Um, you obviously, I think we need to get to a place where we are thinking about use cases when we start out. But when you're starting to think about kind of coverage map, right, yeah. where you can actually move to doing something that isn't a use case, that isn't like specific, that you're not building only two use cases, like how are you seeing people prepare for that? Or how are you seeing people go from, okay, do I just have all these little silos of data and these little silos of insights and action, but it's not the greater picture? So the the practice that we have seen developed there, which I think is... Uh... It's very helpful because it's it's specific enough, I think, for companies to just to start looking at that as a discipline. Is this idea of the data product manager? And you know, of course, because I've been in software my entire career, this was a pretty obvious concept. In fact, you know, I remember when I started my career as a product manager, um, and then when I started then building product management teams, I. I would always refer to this blog post called Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager. I don't know if you've read this, but um, it's a blog through Andreessen Horowitz. Actually, Horowitz himself wrote it. I think it's probably 12 years old. But basically in this blog, he talks about what does it mean to be a product manager? And I think this concept of the data product manager is very applicable here because if we go back to, you know, our first principles here is that, okay, to be data-driven, you need to build data products. What are data products? They are these you know, solutions you can build repeatedly. Who's in charge of that data product? You need a product manager to drive that. A product manager is the CEO of their products. They think about ownership of the data. They think about trustfulness of the data, truth, truthiness. I don't know if I'm stealing Stephen Colbert term, but the idea is that can you actually trust this data? Is there an effective pipeline to get to this data? Is Do we understand how this data is being transformed? What is the lineage of that data? If I change something, what do I break upstream and downstream? Um, how do I take accountability of this as a product? What is my PRD? What is my product requirement document that you're putting on your team as a, as a data leader to say, okay, if we're building, I'm just going to pick a simple example. If we're building a fraud detection or fraud analytics solution for the business, let's say you're in banking, uh, who's the product manager of that? Who is the one owner? Uh, And I think that's where we get tripped up here because organizations are learning to get there. And, you know, we can go out and create our practices or we can look at practices that exist. Product management is, is a discipline that's been around for a long time and try to borrow the principles from that to build, build these data products. That's what we see is, is successful for organizations. And by the way, it's not just true of digital natives. You know, I, you know, organizations today that have strong product management capabilities that can use modern frameworks to build data products know how to do this. You just need to codify it a little bit better. So have your product manager, have your product requirement document, have assigned engineering resources. And by engineering resources, it is your data engineer, of course, Maybe you're a developer, maybe you're a data scientist, maybe you're a data analyst, but you have a group that's accountable for delivering that product on a given timeline with a given upgrade path, with a given 
requirement request path, and so forth. They're basically software engineering for, for data products. Yeah, and, and so I have uh, uh, two questions around that. And one is uh, around just like, where are you seeing people that can step up into this role? And, or are you, and then also, are you seeing it as a set of responsibilities that is put onto a team versus like when you're seeing it be successful? Personally, I think it's a, a role, not responsibilities that go onto additional roles. But like, where are you seeing these data product managers coming from? And, and are you seeing it? Are you seeing effectiveness of both of those? aspects of that it's just responsibilities that are shared by a group of people versus it's a specific kind of, you know, you, I don't like to use the phrase from the old vendor concept thing of one throat to choke, but that there is somebody who is responsible when you think about the racy matrix and that there is somebody who actually owns this as a product, not as just a dashboard. It's actually a product and what does product mean? So... I just would love to see what you're hear what you're you're seeing there. So what we're seeing is, you know, the first bit is the chief data officer has this role and responsibility, and so it needs to be someone who believes in that and someone who's empowered uh, to make it happen. And empowered is not a budget or resource thing. Empowered is what we see is where the CEO, if this person reports to the CEO, reports to someone that works for the CEO, has made it a mandate for the organization that this is the way we will operate moving forward. I think often, you know, as leaders, we are satisfied enough with sponsorship, but sponsorship is, is great to have. But sponsorship also says, you know, if you fail, we'll go and do something else. You know, it's, I support you, but I was also a mentality that it's possible that this might not be the way we do things. A mandate is a little different. A mandate is, We've hired this chief data officer with these particular goals, and we are mandating that this is the way we will be acting moving forward. And there's a decision framework and so forth. And so that's, you know, that's an important one, I think, an important component that we, we see that where the CEO is very connected to this need of acting on, on data. The other component is what is the makeup of your organization to go out and do that? Now, there is a aptitude and attitude thing here. You'll find a lot of folks in the business who actually have this attitude of, you know, I've run a business unit or I've run a particular line of business. And this idea of owning a product from A to Z is, is very comfortable to me. I might not know all the details of the products. I might not be a data engineer myself. But if you pair me with that team, then I'm the owner. Uh, and typically, that is a model that tends to work uh, better than, you know, um, thinking about it as an engineering exercise. Uh, but we also have seen uh, organizations where the data engineer leader is very strong, has really good sense of the business, and they just need to flex on that. Uh, so they think about it from the outside in rather than the inside out, right? One of the big issues of, you know, the big traps that, you know, you can have sometimes is when you have a software engineering mentality is that you're, you're inside out. You're thinking about your own, you know, how I build a product, and then you're applying that to the market and hoping product market fit here. A lot of it is. Outside in, what is the end goal? What is the solution? How does my audience receive, perceive value and then build from that? So start from the customer back. Uh, so that's probably a key principle to try and respect is, is you know, looking at the attitude and the aptitude and seeing 
where you can kind of lean the most. What we have seen that's been really interesting is sometimes as a data leader, you might not have the headcount to hire for that. So we have seen really smart uh, data leaders hire for the business department. So essentially, they are selecting folks for their stakeholders. And when they have that relationship with the business, it really is a great indicator that it's most likely going to succeed because basically if I'm the data leader and I'm partnering with, let's say, a head of marketing or a head of you know, sales, uh, when I'm hiring for them, that person ultimately ends up working in the organization, but they were brought through my hiring process and part of my people. Then you really have sheer responsibility of making these people successful. That's been really a, a you know a practice that we've seen has worked. Are, are you kind of in the the day to day the guts of actually talking to these data product managers? Because that's I think when people are saying like should we grow? Should we hire? Should we like do we have to go find these? And then everybody goes well. There's only you know 500 really data product managers in the world or whatever the number is that actually know what they're doing. So is it? And and it's funny, the number of people that when we talk data literacy say, it's so much easier to teach data to the business people than it is to teach business to the data people. So like, are you seeing that that the ones that are successful, is it that they are that business acumen more, they've got the aptitude of managing a product or or are you, you know, kind of you're talking to the leaders? Are you saying like, what is the pattern that they're seeing? Is there, do you have any insights into that? You know, I talked to all three. So I talked to the leaders, the chief data officers, trying to build kind of the blueprint for their organizations. I talked to the product managers themselves who own the product and have the ownership of shipping that product internally or externally. Uh, and I also talked to the data engineers, the you know, the, the folks that are right deep in the implementation and trying to accelerate the modernization of their organization. Um, you know, there's probably a more sophisticated rubric than the, you know, attitude versus aptitude on this. And there's probably someone, you know, that should be writing, hey, here is the six, dimension, the six dimensions of a really good uh, data product um, manager. But, you know, it's just difficult to give you a straight answer on that. Is it easier to learn data than the business? Well, you know, it depends on the complexity of your data stack, depends on the complexity of your business, right? And so it also depends on who you're talking about. Uh, some, you know, sometimes they need to develop a passion for it and, you know, be able to work hard at understanding it. Um, so I don't know which path is best, but I do know that the best way to do it is, is through this this partnership and the identification of what value actually means in the end. You know, I think, look, you know, if you look at the history of this industry, I've been in it for almost 30 years now. Uh, it's not making me feel very young, but I'm still very passionate about it because at the beginning of the industry, nobody really cared about data, right? When I started, it was all back office stuff. And now it's front office stuff. It's a, you know, it's, it's everything revolves around my ability to turn that into a competitive advantage if you're a chief data officer. So I would say that this idea of thinking about it as a team that produces products for people to continue executing on their tasks is probably the best way to think about it. choosing who is going to be uh, the best person is a real personal thing. I don't have a six rules on it, but I know it's very, very critical uh, for chief data officers. I think, you know, often... We try to make the simple things complex. In fact, in this case, it's actually pretty simple. It's it's your people 
and being able to identify this this grit, if you will, uh, and this desire to own data as a product rather than just you know the reporting. And, and yeah, I, I think the if if I were to sum up a lot of what you're saying there is kind of it depends, and it, it really is based on your culture. And I th- but I think that's an important thing to note is that this copy paste. Uh, approach that people want to take because it does make it easier if you can say, well, I, I like the way that this company is doing it, so I'm just going to copy paste to my organization. It doesn't really work that way, and and you've got to kind of figure it out. How are you though seeing? I mean, I think the answer again will be it depends. But how are you seeing these data capabilities? Are you seeing them embedded into the domains into the lines of business? Or are you seeing that that people are still doing this with the centralized team? Because, you know, like I said earlier, there are people who view data mesh as it completely decentralizes. There is no data team. I think that's Jamak's like long, long term vision. I, to me, I think that's a little bit silly for the next eight to 10 years because I don't think we know how to do this well enough. And I think data people <laughs> being embedded into these domains are like, my career development is now broken. Like, unless I find an, an organization that's doing this exact same thing, they don't know how to manage me. They don't know how to grow me. They, they may know how to, how to manage a product, but they don't know how to do data. And so then am I stuck in the, so like, how are you seeing the organizations actually organize themselves around these data products to deliver these capabilities? So it can actually be a product instead of it's a project. Right, product management, not project management. There, there, there are three uh, types of models that, that we see. Uh, the first one is centralized, just like you define a traditionally strong IT data group that is able, either through resources or s- smart uh, use of technology, to uh, output more than the requests coming in. And that, that you, you know, we know historically is is a fairly challenging role to be in because. Um, well, it requires that you're going to be ahead of the questions. You know, we know every question leads to another six questions. You can do the math very quickly. You're going to be overwhelmed after three days, right? And so, so that centralized model uh, is a very complex one to make work. The decentralized model, which is the second one, uh, is one that we're starting to pe- see people, um, you know, gravitate towards. Um, the third one is is where I think we're going to get to. So if you hang on with me, I'll tell you what the third one is. But decentralized is kind of this idea of saying, look, you know, everybody's got their own budget. Buy your tool set. Good luck. Let us know where you have the answers. Uh, that might give you some really uh, sh- quick wins, um, you know, isolated wins. You know, marketing has, you know, strong budget and they've got the best business analysts and they're going to compete with uh, sales who has less of a capability and maybe HR and maybe ops and so forth. And the issue with that is that it's for CEO, it could be dangerous because in the end, you know you're going to have to figure out a way to connect the dots. Uh, and if you are enabled to connect the dots and, and you've created such an empowered organization that completely is decentralized where now, even though they have come out with great results, they're disconnected with each other, you, you might not be able to, you know, accelerate the growth of your organization. You have islands, essentially. Um, the third model is this federated model, right? We all share. It's kind of, uh, 
you know, I think Germany and, and the U.S. and these countries that have, you know, federated systems where we have common goals and we also have local goals. Um, so a great example, for instance, of a common goal is uh, centralized policy on data access. We have to respect certain rules on how data is accessed. Uh, we have a data fabric solution that enables us to create those rules, but yet my data is distributed, right? My data is, you know, is owned and is used across multiple departments, but they all adhere to the same types of rules that are centrally managed and approved. Um, that tends to work a little bit better. Uh, and it works better, not just from a technology step. I mean, it's, it's harder to deploy, right? Because you got to have both the centralized technology, the central decentralized technologies, you got to be able to, so that's a little harder, but modern, thankfully modern technology like cloud allows us to do that. that. That was impossible in the on-prem world, right? In the on-prem world where you got to, you know, how do you connect all these, these, uh, hubs, if you will. Now it's a lot easier to connect them, to use the power of the cloud, uh, and to also manage costs uh, ultimately to the benefit of the organization. But it also works for the people because now you have transferable knowledge where someone that might be working in a particular you know, department is also connected to the central team uh, for things that might matter. Like, uh, you know, like I said, just not just policies, but imagine that you've created a common data set across your federated systems and you want to sign a... Um, trust index to that data set. Well, now the person that came from the domain has some interesting context that you can add to the rest of the group. So I think that third model is probably what we'll see more and more, this idea of that there are things that are centralized, there are things that are decentralized, but because with modern technology, we can connect them, we now have the ability to execute faster, but also create a path for people because the folks in the centralized team, if they, you know, they get really passionate about, hey, I'm really interested in helping this particular business group or this particular geography, you know, we've got organizations that are growing through acquisition, you know, and so in the case of delivery, that's certainly the case where they have distributed organizations and they wanted the people that are close to the customers to own the data on that relationship. Well, that's really difficult to centralize, right? When you centralize that, are you kind of losing the relationship with the local market? You never want to do that. So, so that's what's great about this, you know, federate system where now people work in centralized team can decide to be on an assignment in a deployed location or deployed domain, if you will. And the people in the domain can say, I've got some really best practices that I think can contribute to everyone. And they find a career path back into the central team. So with that, you still do see a central team. Is that the platform team and maybe the governance team? Or is there a central anal analytics team? Is there like because you you do need these capabilities inside the domain, but you also need them not inside the domain that they're not focused on. So how how do you see that that kind of mix between those? Because I, I I do agree with you. And then the other question I would have on that, sorry to 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 tag up on on two questions at the same time, but like how do you actually evolve to a federated system? Right? You look at the the um, history of the U.S. and like the first thing was the Articles of Confederation, and that was way too much of um, decentralized, right? It didn't have any kind of federal system. But then the Constitution said at the same time, all of these thirteen states are now the the original thing, right? That we're going to put all of this stuff underneath. And so, like, 
how do you actually evolve towards a, a federated system and that you're okay with the overhead of that federated system as you're expanding more and more out? Because you don't, at least my perspective, you don't go in with a sledgehammer to a monolith, whether yeah. that's the actual technical monolith or it's the organizational monolith, you have to go in. So I, I just love to hear kind of how you're seeing that working. So I'm not a you know history expert. I, I, I have watched Hamilton probably more than anyone I know. <laughs> um, so I love the, the history of France, where I'm from, but also the, the history of, of the U.S. And, you know, we, uh, it's difficult to tell, you know, uh, when, when you've achieved perfection, it's almost, you know, always experimenting to get close to perfection. I think in the, in the, in the state of, of technology, the, the way we see organizations think about it is there's probably three types of products, right? There's three types of data products. You have, let me start with the opposite first, is you have the data products that are really domain focused, right? And they are so uniquely tailored for that domain that there is very little that's leverageable for the rest of the organization. I, you know, I, I could make examples, but just think about an example of an application or data product that's relevant to local uh, governance or local policies and regulations in a particular country, or maybe that domain in particular is very specialized, right? So if it's an industry. So that's type one. Uh, there, you know, there's not much of centralization that you can do except for the, you know, the connection with the, the data and, and, you know, the source of the data and so forth and how it works with corporate policies themselves. The second is the extreme one on the other side, which absolutely has to be a centralized uh, uh, product. You know, if you think about an organization even that's uh, globally distributed, they might have a certain, um, you know, goals for the people development, career, and, and so they want to have fairness across the organization regardless where you're located. Well, that cannot be a distributed thing, and and you know that that you know that's that might be a simple example, but we we do have to think about that. There's two extremes where there are products that are hyper local, and there are products that are hyper central, I guess. And then there is all the stuff in the middle, and so I think the role of a chief data officer when they pick their use case is probably to determine what is the fair percentage of those things and what are the the capabilities you have to deploy those. You know, in some organizations, you have really strong local capabilities and you can lean hard on making sure you're enabling them to build those local products that they need because of the particular geography, particular domain. Some organizations, they got really strong data engineering central team that can build products that are the required, you know, centralized product, but also the beginning of something that the rest of the organization can stand on to build their own products. Ideally, that's typically what would happen is your central team is making a set of bets that not only take care of the centralized need of the organization, but they also are created as a platform for the domains to take advantage of it. So, uh, you know, a data analytics sharing platform is a great example of that. And I say data analytics, not data sharing platform, because a data analytics sharing platform typically is focused on the collection of multiple data sets and a layer on top of that that enables you to create a data analytics solution that can then be shared and extended. And so that's a great example where you have a central data engineering team building that for the organization and then going to, I don't know, Germany, France, and the UK and saying, customize on top of that. Um, that's, a, that's a way that you can get there. 
it's probably faster to do it that way than to say, hey, France has built this really super helpful thing for the France uh, model and try to make that a central solution. Often, I mean, that's ra- it's, it can happen, but it's just rare because typically what makes this unique hyper-local solution work is that it is hyper-local. And so you'd have to peel off, if you will, the components that are usable by everyone else. I might have over-answered your question again. I apologize. I'm very passionate about this uh, this topic. No, and, and it, well, I think it's it's always good to get kind of perspectives of what's working out there, what people are doing, because I think I, I think there still isn't a a full answer, a full concrete answer to this, because I think everybody still has to test it, and we still have to see a lot of things. But like, how do we think about? driving like the value of data mesh. I, I've talked about this, uh, the SCAE, which is Scott's confusing ass equation, which is <laughs> like the, the value of an incremental data product should be that it's valuable in and of itself, but that it also has value in the greater organizational sense. So one plus one equals three. But when you get to 2001s, it's not that 2001s, when you add them all up equals 2001. Right. It's that you have that compounding additional incremental value. And like, how do we actually get there? And how do we how do we set ourselves up to get there? And and I think, um, you know, I've been talking about this for a while of, of this kind of a concept of a slider. You know, I think about like mixing tables and things like that, where there's all these different things that, that and every every single like audio engineer has different settings where they put these things on different things because everyone is unique to the situation. And that's frustrating because it's like, you have to find it. You have to test it out. You have to figure out, Hey, we tried this thing. It doesn't work. But I think that that centralization decentralization slider in a federated environment, what is centralized, what is not, that's what we have to get to. Sarita Baxt at JP Morgan Chase talked about this perfectly, where she said, hey, some domains, we have the governance really centralized in the central governance teams because the domains don't have the capabilities yet. And we're, we're working with them. We're asking them the questions to make sure that we're, ask, we're making the right decisions. But there are some domains where that person knows the rules, the laws, better than the central governance teams because it is that hyper-local, hyper-specialized, like this is the specific thing around options trading or, or whatever it is. I think it gets way more specific than that. And so they give them more of the responsibility and the cap- because they have the capability. They have the attitude and the aptitude. So I'm going to give them more, but that I give them the support if they need it. So I think I think it's it's a difficult question. I I know it's a difficult question to answer, but um, so I, I, I know you, you know I will tell you the one thing that doesn't work. I can tell you the it, 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 we see this in in um, particularly in the in the business intelligence market, right? And we we've lived through this where you've got hyper silos that create their own semantics. In fact, they look like a great artifact that is a you know beautiful and gives you this idea that you're empowered a lot of people to make decisions with data, but then you double click and you realize, oh, we have diff- different definitions of the same thing. My customer definition here is different than my customer definition over there. And so this idea of universal semantic layer is something that's coming now to the forefront where can we 
decouple some parts of the stack where some of it is centralized, some of it is decentralized. Universal semantic layer is a great example where you, if you have a state where you can create your semantic once, that are leveraged by customized applications that are at the edge, you're going to be in a better state than if you're tying your business logic and semantics to that application because you've essentially potentially created a silo or an island over there that's giving you the impression that you have the information, the data, and so forth, but in fact, it's completely disconnected to the rest of the organization. That model does not work anymore. But we have to be flexible around anything universal, anything that is centralized. It's like you, if you want to participate in the greater thing, you should be looking to use this, but it's also okay if you're driving value that isn't within this specification, right? Like it is okay that we have things where if the return on investment makes sense, like do it and that we, but that we aren't, yes, creating these silos. We aren't creating these little islands of, of value. And you talked about that decentralized. I love that of quick wins to small value, right? Yeah. Like quick wins to, eh, this is good, but it wasn't, yeah. it doesn't, it's not the long run. It's not the. The other bit, yeah, the other bit. So yes, I agree with you. The, the other bit I would add, I would add to this is, the reason for why this product dimension works, right? Think about it as a product management problem is because when you build a product, it, you, you could launch it, but the bid that almost matters as much as launching it is maintaining it. And so that's why having a product manager on it is this idea that this is a living thing where you're shipping it and then there's an update to that and there's a next version after that because you're learning from the market about what is driving the most value to your stakeholders. And so... Um, that's why I think this data product manager makes a lot of sense. And that's why sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm a little wary of people saying, oh, you know, they'll do it as a part-time thing. This is not a part-time thing. This is, you know, in 10 years from now, you'll be asking, why don't you have a chief data officer? Just like, why don't you have a CFO, right? I mean, this will become a part of how we run companies in the next 10 years. And hopefully you and I can still talk about it then. We are in that transformation right now. I think you're talking project versus product, right? Like yeah. project is about getting, you know, getting it right perfectly up front. And if you don't, it's a failure, right? Or if it, it, it either meets expectations or doesn't versus a product, you talk yeah. about minimum viable. And, you know, I've talked about minimum viable what? Is it minimum viable a product, a data product, minimum viable a data set that's not a data product, minimum viable mesh, whatever, but so much of it is about that iteration. It is about that it is a living breathe. You think about, you know, I, I don't have kids, but if you're raising kids, think about that, right? It's not about that they're born and they're done. You're, yeah. you're, you're working with them throughout their life. And so you're giving them feedback. You're, you're, you know, kind of raising them. That's the way we have to think about things, but that we also have to then readjust expectations of data consumers that we're going to tell you how much to trust it and we're going to iterate on this together, but it's not fully baked and you have to understand that. And that has to be okay because if you only want fully baked, we're not going to be in a product mindset. We're not going to drive the value that we need and want. Yeah. And, and that, that conversation being explicit, I, I talk about that a lot too of like, stop just... It, you know, kind of dancing around these things, like get super explicit and be like, Hey, 
this is what this means. Like, I want to make sure we're on the same page because that's what good human communication is about. It's, it's yeah. about actually having yeah. that, that back and forth. So, well, um, this, this has been an awesome conversation. I love, I love talking about this and I just love chatting with you because you're so engaging and, and like you said, you're passionate about this stuff. Well, thank um, you. I enjoy too. <laughs> is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to? I mean, I'm sure there always is, but is there anything specific or any way you'd want to kind of wrap up the episode in general? Uh, you know, I could be here for hours. So I, I don't know if that's a question you want to ask me. Of course, uh, I have 10 rules of the data culture, what you should do, what you should not do. We could talk about that some other time. I would say uh, there's probably uh, just one thing that people can do. Uh, LinkedIn is the main vehicle that, you know, I use for networking. I don't really use Twitter or anything else uh, as much. And I like LinkedIn because it allows me to kind of understand what network you're part of. And so I would say, Find me on LinkedIn. Uh, every week or so, I do this car cast where I summarize the top five things in, in the data AI and analytics space for the community. It's not a highly scripted thing. And the way I do it is by hearing from people in the community who ping me throughout the week and tell me, hey, I read this thing. I think it's interesting. Don't use it as a marketing opportunity. I'm not here to market your company or mine, uh, but I'm here to create a platform so we can learn as data practitioners and data nerds. And so use that, you know, ping me on LinkedIn, uh, send me stuff that you think is interesting and let's have a conversation. And if, you know, I find that this is something that is worth for the entire community, I'll, I'll definitely uh, feature it as part of as my uh, five minute top five things of the week uh, car cast update. It's called car cast because I do it from my car. So that's, that tells you how, you know, how professionally edited this thing is. I do it with my phone from my car. So don't expect a lot of production there. Yeah, they're, but they're great. And, and we'll drop links to that stuff in the show notes as, as usual, just to make it easy for folks if they want to follow up. But again, Bruno, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for spending the time today. And as well, thank you as well, everyone out there for listening. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guest today. Bruno Aziza, Head of Data and Analytics at Google Cloud. You can find a link to his LinkedIn, his Medium, and his YouTube, which are where he posts his weekly write-ups slash carcasts in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. 
and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Thank mm-hmm. you.